Uh, so with that in mind, uh, go to John chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 28, and we're going to read through verse 38. This is John chapter 18, starting in verse 28. Uh, friends, hear the word of the Lord to us this morning. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. The word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of body and soul and joint and marrow. It discerns the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts before whom we are all laid naked. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Amen, would you be seated and keep that Bible open as we pray and study God's word together. Uh, Father, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit that we would know what truth is. Uh, Jesus, we pray that you and that you alone by your Holy Spirit would speak to us, that we would hear your voice and none other. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so what is truth? What's truth, right? That's the question that Pilate asked Jesus after they talked for just a few moments. Uh, it's the question that Pilate asks, and of course, it's still today, right? The question that many of us and a lot of people are asking today. Uh, but friends, what I need you to see this morning is that to understand how to answer that question, what is truth? You've got to understand a little bit about the world in which Jesus inhabited, all right? So think about that for a second. What was the world like? when Jesus was alive walking around in Israel? What was the world that Jesus inhabited? What was that like? And that context is gonna help us understand what is truth. Well, let me unpack that for just a second. The world that Jesus inhabited had uh, three things I want you to notice in this passage that sort of define the milieu, the time that Jesus was living. Uh, the first thing that, uh, that defines sort of the world that Jesus inhabited is there are people who are full of hypocrisy, and they are primarily religious leaders. All right, so that's the first thing you need to know about the world that Jesus lived in. There are, there are plenty of religious hypocrites, 
right? We see that right there with uh, the delegation of the Jewish authorities who lead Jesus to Pilate in order to murder him, but they don't want to enter Pilate's house. Why not? Because they don't want to be defiled so they can take part of the religious feast later that day, plotting murder and also religious activities. So the first thing that defines Jesus's world, right, is religious hypocrisy. The second thing you need to recognize in this passage that defines this world, uh, this time in life, was that there were silent and intimidated followers of Jesus. Where are all the apostles right now in our story? Uh, they've all primarily abandoned Jesus and run away, right? Peter has denied three times after talking a big game, and we only really get hints that John is still sort of lingering around, but he certainly doesn't want anybody to know that he's associated with Jesus. So the second thing that sort of defines the era that Jesus is living in is there are religious hypocrites everywhere, and then the people who claim to follow him, they're all intimidated by the world, intimidated by the religious hypocrites, and they're all silent. They're, they're MIA, right? They're all missing in action. Where are the apostles? Where's Peter? Uh, Peter's hiding in some back alley of shame. We won't know the end of Peter's story till the end of the Gospel of John when Jesus reminds him that he's still back on the team despite what he's done. All right, the third and sort of the last thing I want you to see in our passage is that another mark of the world that Jesus inhabited was that there were worldly, godless people who saw truth as really a power struggle between groups of people, right? So truth was not something ultimate that they could achieve, right? It was, it was power dynamics. Or, or perhaps uh, truth was unknowable. What is truth after all? And then, of course, the world also on a very profound level, was just, you know, apathetic towards what truth was. See, this is who Jesus is talking to, Pilate, right? Who really, his worldview is not, is not concerned with truth. Pilate's worldview is concerned with power, power dynamics. How do I maintain my position in power and work my way up? And how do I appease these religious leaders so that I can maintain my power dynamics? And when Jesus starts talking about truth, what does he do? I mean, he almost sounds like a, a postmodern English professor in a city, right? He says, what is truth? Let's deconstruct that. Well, the reason I mentioned those three people, and I, I think you're getting my point, right, is that the world that Jesus inhabited is really what? It's really just our world. Right? Our world today is full of religious hypocrites. We're full of people who are greedy, and they use religion as a prop to prop themselves up and look down on others. We see religious leaders use their positions of power to promote their own brand, Instead of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's easy to see a world that doesn't see ultimate truth. It sees power dynamics, and it sees everything through a lens of power struggle. And of course, it's easy to see a bunch of silent and intimidated followers of Jesus Christ, of which, you know, I'd put myself in, right? Anyone else feeling silenced a little bit? I can't hear you for some reason. You've got something on your face. I heard that one. So what is it that Jesus has come to do? If that's the world that he lived in, what is it that distinguishes Jesus from all these sort of disparate groups of people who are all sort of missing the mark, although they think they're getting close to it? Well, sort of in, in all of the rabble of all these different groups, right, uh, we hear Jesus speaking. And what does Jesus say? Look at verse 36. Jesus starts talking again like he has for a long time about his kingdom. He says that there is another way of living. There is another way to view life itself. 
uh, that the things that are broken in this world, God is not overlooking them. He's not ignoring injustice. God is doing something about injustice because God is justice itself. God is the truth itself. These things spring from his character. And fundamentally what our problem is, right, is that we have sinned against a holy God. And because we cannot love him, we can't love each other. And so what Jesus starts preaching, of course, is a new way of life, the kingdom of God that offers salvation for all kind of people, people like Pilate and people who are religious hypocrites. Uh, one of them wrote half the books in the New Testament. Paul was a religious hypocrite until he met Jesus Christ. See, Jesus is speaking to a world a lot like ours. And Jesus is preaching something called the gospel, right? Which uh, you, you remember, how do we define the gospel? You know, this is just a basic summary, right? The gospel's two simple messages. What are they? Cheer up. <laughs> you and I, we're worse than we think. But cheer up. You and I, we are more loved and accepted in Christ Jesus than we dare imagine. See, friends, this is the message that Jesus came preaching. He came preaching a message of repentance, Every one of us needs to repent of our sin. Every one of us needs to turn not on our own understanding, but on to God, our creator. You see, this message goes for men and for women, for Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, young and old, right and left. The gospel is for anyone who would call upon the name of the Lord. They can be saved. You see, the kingdom of God that Jesus is talking to Pilate about, right? Uh, it's a way of living uh, that shows us what it means to live, not for our own glory, but for the glory of God. It's a way of living that shows us how to be reconciled to God. It shows us what it means to really love our neighbors as ourselves. And of course, it shows us how to yearn for God more than anything. That ultimately, as St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. I see a lot of restless people today, don't you? So how do we enter the kingdom? Well, Jesus says it right there in verse 37. Jesus has come to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now, friends, can you hear Jesus Christ now? Uh, Jesus speaks as clearly to us as he did to Peter. I mean, that's the high calling. That's the point of the, the work and the, uh, the office of the apostles that's what separates you and me from the apostles. We're all disciples. We're all followers of Jesus. But there are men that God called to be apostles. You know, the 12 apostles. And what they do is they write down the very words of Jesus Christ to us. And so as later on in a few weeks, we'll see that Jesus says, blessed are those who believe yet have never seen my resurrected body because they have everything they need. They have the testimony of the apostles. See, those of us who hear the voice of Jesus have everything we need to believe. Uh, Jesus speaks as clearly to you and me right now as he did to Pilate. And he does so because his Holy Spirit has broken into this sinful world and is calling people by name into the family of God. So what is it that Jesus' voice would have us see well, I think I can only really rightly speak on behalf of God to the extent that Scripture speaks, right? I'm not supposed to give you, you know, the gospel according to Dustin. I'm supposed to give you the gospel according to Jesus Christ. 
And so what is it in this passage that you and I are supposed to see? What would Jesus have us hear? Well, I'm going to give you sort of two things this morning to consider. The first is the danger of religious hypocrisy, all right? This is the world that Jesus lives in, and it is also still today the world that you and I inhabit, right? Humanity has not changed. That's why Scripture still bites. That's why it still convicts, right? We're still the same kinds of people. We just create more interesting ways uh, to do things in life, right? But we haven't fundamentally changed. So let me just sort of unpack why uh, I'm, I'm hammering on the religious hypocrisy, right? Well, you have to understand that Jesus is about to be killed, right? So we're in, in Passion Week, the last week of Jesus' life. We're in Friday morning, and by Friday night, he'll be dead, right? So this is uh, the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. And just the days before, Jesus is teaching all over Jerusalem. And we know what the kind of things Jesus talks about because the Gospels tell us. In Matthew 23, uh, in one of the most famous passages in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, Jesus unleashes, unleashes a scathing critique of religious hypocrites. You know what he says about them? He says they're greedy. Can you imagine a religious leader who would use their position of power for more money? For a golden toilet? For jets? He rips into religious leaders for being self-righteous. They're more interested in titles than they are in serving anybody. They say, they, they spend, Jesus says they spend more time arguing minute, obscure theological points of application, and instead they ignore the weightier matters of God's law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He says they're proud and they're condescending, and he says they are more effective peddlers of their personal brand and their own pride than they are of the gospel of grace and truth. Uh, Matthew 23, verse 25, he says, he says that he's speaking to these people. He says, woe to the scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. He says, you are full of greed and indulgence. Earlier in verse 6, he says, they love the place of honor at the feasts, and they love the best seats at the table. They love it when people acknowledge how important they are. And he says, outwardly they appear righteous, but within they are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And then uh, in, in verse 23, 23, easy to remember, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. <laughs> Is it any wonder why these people wanted to kill Jesus this morning? What was the world like that Jesus inhabited? It's kind of like ours. Of course, the reason I, I, I mention all this is because John wants to highlight the hypocrisy that's going on in our passage. Right? That's why verses 28 through 32 exist, is because these religious leaders have plotted murder. They're planning on killing Jesus because he dares to call them hypocrites. And what they do is they bring him to Pilate because, you know, they don't have the authority to actually execute Jesus. So they try to get him to get executed by Pilate. 
And so they arranged this whole early morning meeting with Pilate. And there's all kind of fascinating things that you can learn about the Roman world, like, you know, Roman centurions and the officials, they would have started their morning around 5 a.m. And they would have been done by around 10 to noon every day. Sounds pretty good, right? It's good to be a Roman back then. Now that explains why they're here so early. They come early in the morning. And what do they want Pilate to do? They say, hey, we brought him to you. And Pilate sort of humiliates them. Uh, certainly Pilate knew what they were doing, right? Because remember, some Roman guards came and arrested Jesus. Do you remember that the night before? There were Roman guards, so clearly Pilate knew that they wanted to put him to death. But Pilate just can't help himself. He just loves power dynamics so dang much. You know what he does is he humiliates and says, oh, what are you doing here? And they're like, we've already told you. Like, we wouldn't have brought him to you unless he was doing something bad. And then to further humiliate him and to remind them, you know, they're under his thumb, he says, well, you take care of him. And they're like, this guy, you know, who was his mother, right? <laughs> and of course, the context, the reason that John is mentioning all this is not so much to highlight Pilate in this moment, although we do learn a lot about Pilate. It's really to highlight the hypocrisy of these religious leaders who are willing and plotting murder. They're trying to kill Jesus, but they, they refuse to enter into uh, Pilate's headquarters, his praetorian in Greek, right? He, they refuse to enter the space because they want to take part of the Passover feast. So they're still planning on going to worship that evening. They still want to be a part of the religious community, uh, but inwardly, they're full of what? Well, Jesus says, he said it before, they were like whitewashed tombs, right? <laughs> clean on the outside, but inside the cup, they're not clean at all. So how are we supposed to respond to this? Well, uh, I mean, obviously, I'm preaching this to myself more than anybody because I'm in some position of a religious leader and I need to be warned by my Savior that hypocrisy is a very real danger for me. But hypocrisy is a danger for all of us. For anybody who wants to follow Jesus Christ, hypocrisy is a danger that each of us face. It doesn't make any of the statements of Jesus untrue. I think this is an important thing. Before I talk about hypocrisy, I want you to know that in Matthew 23, Jesus says something pretty profound. Uh, even though he's ripping into the religious leaders, he doesn't do what we may think he's going to do. Uh, there may be a part of us that says, well, really, Jesus doesn't care about the rules. You know, the rules are for jerks, you know, people like my father, right? I don't want anybody, I don't want any more rules, you know. But that's not actually what Jesus says in Matthew 23. Jesus says, you need to listen to your religious leaders because they sit on Moses' seat. So do what they say, but do not practice what they do because they do not practice what they preach. All right, so Jesus still upholds that God's word doesn't change regardless of the character of the person speaking. And it's not an excuse to throw out God's word or God's rules on anything. But we are supposed to see that we need to be wary of hypocrisy. So how would you and I struggle with hypocrisy? Well, for many of us, oftentimes, you know, we know that we are made right with God and that God offers through his spirit the way of life. But oftentimes, instead of that continuing to make us more and more humble and dependent on Jesus Christ, often we use that as a way of looking down on other sinners. Oh, they're just the worst. <laughs> you know, I'm so glad I'm not like a knucklehead like that guy. But friends, you know, are we supposed to use our faith to look down on sinners? Or are we supposed to use our faith as a bridge to sinners of whom we all once walked according to the power of the prince of the air? 
You know, notice what Paul says in 1 Timothy. Paul says it this way. Um, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save what? Good people, of whom I'm pretty good, better than you, jerk. No, <laughs> that's not, that's second opinions, okay? That's not in the Bible. Jesus Christ, speaking through Paul, says what? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So the gospel does not make us better uh, or give us grounds to look down on sinners. What it gives is it gives us a mission to sinners because someone on a mission brought that message to us. And we are sinners saved by grace. So really, faith is not meant to make us look down on other people. Really, faith is a call to repent and believe the gospel every single day. You know, Martin Luther and the famous 95 Theses helped me understand this. You know, you know what, anyone, anyone ever read the 95 Theses? Anybody want some brownie points? Hey, uh, one person. We got, we got two Lutherans in the room. This is so exciting. I better not mess this up. If you read the 95 Theses, yeah, you don't need to read the other 94. All you need to read is the first one, because the first one is his best point. You know what his first point is? Number one on the 95 Theses, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed that the entire life of believers is to be one of repentance. Faith is walking with Jesus. You know what the two steps are? You know what your left shoe is and your right shoe? Repent of sin, believe in the gospel of grace. And the gospel of grace is gonna motivate you to get rid of sin in your life. And the more you try to repent, the more you'll realize you actually need a lot more grace than you thought. And God's grace is going to lead you to repentance. Romans 2, do you not know that God's grace is meant to lead you to repentance? Your right step is meant to lead you to your left step. And this is what it means to walk in faith. We repent of sin daily, and we trust in God's grace daily. We know that we are worse than we think and more loved and accepted than we think. And you know what happens when that actually burrows its way from your head to your heart? You don't look down on other people. You don't. You know what happens to your pride? It melts like a, you know, I don't know, ice cream cone in the sun, right? Your pride just starts to go away because you're humbled before the Lord. Let me just say one more thing about uh, religious hypocrisy. You know, one of the great things, we've, we've talked a lot about Martin Luther today. I really hope there's a Lutheran in the room. They would be so proud of us. We sang A Mighty Fortress is Our God, which is a Luther hymn. Uh, but Luther also famously helped me understand how to always be chipping away at religious hypocrisy. And he said that we need to think of ourselves as beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. You know, I think a lot of people who would claim the name of Jesus Christ, they really want to be a what? They want to be a baker. And they want to tell you to buy their bread. You know, how many of us come to somebody thinking we've got the solutions? How many of us see ourselves as bakers, ready to just hand out loaves of truth to other people, when in reality, we're beggars, but we know where the soup kitchen is. We're beggars, but we know where we can find the free bread, the bread without price, as Isaiah will say. Are you a beggar telling other beggars where to find bread? It's the danger of religious hypocrisy. It's the danger of uh, focusing so much on the rules we forget the purpose of our faith, which is to know 
the living God, to know God. These leaders had forgotten it. They, were, they are able to simultaneously plan worship and plan murder. So that is a warning to us from this passage. All right, the second warning is probably more of the focus of verses 33 through 38, right? And even though Jesus is talking about the kingdom, he's talking about how it's not of this world, and on one level, all Jesus is saying, he's saying, I'm not a king with an army come to take over the Roman government. That's not the kind of kingdom that I'm establishing. And so if you're going to ask me if I'm a king, well, that's your word for it. You know, you say so. Um, But that's not the kind of kingdom I'm bringing into this world, and I'm not that kind of political king. And so Pilate doesn't quite get that, and so Jesus says, okay, I came for a specific reason, to testify to the truth. And if you are of the truth, you will respond to my voice, and you will become part of my kingdom. If you're of the truth, you will listen to me. And of course, uh, I think even right now, I think Jesus is evangelizing. I think Jesus is sharing the gospel with Pilate. I think he's calling Pilate to see that Jesus is the king. And he says, I have come, I have been sent from the Father to testify to the truth. And how does Pilate respond? What is truth? What is truth? He totally sidesteps, deconstructs, and rejects the even concept of truth. Friends, I think this embodies almost more than anything in the Gospel of John what it means to be of the world. What does it mean to be from the world? Well, it means like you resemble the world. Uh, It means that you would sound and value the things of the world, that you just think in a way that the world wants you to think in. You don't think with the mind of Christ yet. And so really, if you unpack that question, what do you think is going through Pilate's mind when he looks at Jesus and he goes, what is truth? Well, I mean, he sounds like a 20-year-old, certainly, today, right? Because it sounds like a postmodern question. But I think there is a a bridge between what he's saying and how we would ask it. Uh, I think the first thing we need to see is that what, you know, I'm going to give you three things, sort of how the world would define truth. The number one thing is, I think they would say truth is sort of what we make it, right? Truth is just sort of what we want it to be, right? There's your truth, well, that's my truth. You know, anyone ever been guilty of saying, well, that's your truth, this is my truth. You know, I think um, the rise of the concern about fake news has sort of popped that silly balloon, you know, that there could be such a thing as your truth versus my truth. Well, that negates the idea, the concept of what actually is true. Uh, you know, we, we treat the truth like it's, you know, a lump of bread, right? We knead it, we bake it, you know, and it comes out all, you know, processed. Uh, but we have been doing this for a really long time. We may think that's sort of a modern problem, that we think of truth as sort of malleable, I mean, C.S. Lewis, writing a long time ago, you know, 60-some years ago, was still able to critique our culture. In The Abolition of Man, uh, C.S. Lewis makes this point about how people saw truth. They said, uh, for the wise men of old, the cardinal problem was how to conform the soul to reality. And, you know, the solutions were knowledge and discipline and virtue and all that. But now, sort of magic, sort of mysticism is what we would probably call it, mysticism, new age thought, and science— alike now see the problem as how do subdue reality to my soul? (laughs) You know, so instead of seeing truth as something that I'm supposed to conform and become a part of, now I am trying to conform reality based on my feelings. See, this is C.S. Lewis talking decades ago, but the problem still remains. You know, today people, they just want to make truth into what it is. They want to treat it like a lump of, you know, Leaven, bread, 
So I think there's a hint that that's what Pilate means. You know, what is truth? Truth is just what you make it, buddy. Uh, but I think there's another deeper level, I think, at what Pilate is saying, which I think is more in line with how Pilate would have seen the world and how a lot of people today are, can, are increasingly seeing the world, which is he really sees truth as sort of just naked power struggles, right? This is just a power fight, right? So uh, to understand what's going through Pilate's mind, uh, Pilate will be gone in Jerusalem in just a few years. You know, he was uh, overseeing this region of the world, but within a couple of years, he's going to be removed, right? He only lasted about 10 years, and then history tells us he ended up taking his own life, uh, but uh, Pilate was incredibly ruthless. Uh, we know that uh, the Gospel of Luke tells us that he was trying to put down uh, sort of uh, an uprising of the people, and while they were offering sacrifices to the Lord, he slaughtered them all, and so they mingled their blood with the sacrifices. Uh, so Pilate is incredibly uh, violent. He's willing to put down people. Uh, he has a, a worldview that is like, my job is to maintain power, <laughs> and whatever it takes to maintain power, I'm going to do. Uh, Pilate knows Jesus has not broken any of the Roman laws. He knows it. I mean, Pilate sort of tries to get Jesus off the hook. But of course, if you read into John 19, as we will next week, you'll know that Pilate knows Jesus hasn't done anything wrong. So what does Pilate immediately do? We'll look at verse 19.1. As soon as he's done with this, he says, what is truth? He walks outside and demands that Jesus be flogged. He has this man whipped almost to the point of death. Why? Because he hasn't done anything wrong. And then, of course, he gives over to the leader's desire for murder. And he you know, famously, remember, he says, I wash my hands of this, as if he, he weren't actually the one who had the decision to make. See, what Pilate sees is he's trying to maintain his power. So everything is, what can I do? How can I operate in a way that allows me to have power? You know, so many people today are increasingly seeing that basically is truth. Let's not talk about ultimate reality. Let's not talk about the worth of the individual soul. What we have today is a power struggle between oppressed groups and oppressors. And so what we need to do is we need to combine the oppressed groups and attack the oppressors. Uh, there's not such thing as, you know, basic human worth. What it is is there's just, there's just power dynamics. You know, so just take it. You know, be violent. Everything's justifiable. See, friends, this is a worldview that is not found in Scripture. It's a worldview that says truth, it doesn't really matter. What matters is the great power struggle. You know, it's just naked power grabbing. Of course, the third and other way that the world would see truth, not only do they see it as something you just make or you construct or instead of, you know, working your soul to be better, you just make the world like whatever you feel, and instead of seeing, you know, truth as objective, they see it as really, it's just, these are just power dynamics at work. The final way that probably resonates maybe mostly with you is I do think there is a sense that Pilate just simply doesn't care what the truth is after all. You know what? It's probably not even worth my time. You know, in verse 38, the impression that he gives is he says, what is truth? And in verse 39, it says, after he said this, he went back outside. <laughs> he wasn't even interested in the discussion. And I think that is the final and sort of third way I want to point out is that many of us see today truth is just, it's just irrelevant. Who cares? It's too abstract. Uh, that's your perspective. You know what? At the end of the day, I just don't care. Uh, you know, I think the, the guy who I think, you know, put his points so much on this is a writer for The Atlantic named Jonathan Roch. And he was talking about how he sort of deconstructed his faith in God. And uh, he said this about uh, how he came to just basically see that he doesn't really care about truth. He said this in the Atlantic. He said, I used to call myself an atheist. 
and I still don't believe in God. But the larger truth is that it has been years since I really cared one way or another. I'm, and here's his point, I'm an apatheist. He says, I'm not an atheist. I don't disbelieve in God. I just don't care. I just have apathy. I don't care. I'm an apatheist. You know, he's not alone. Uh, Baylor University did a religion survey in 2011, you know, the, the Baptist school down in Waco. And in their religious survey, they found that 44% of Americans said they spend no time seeking eternal wisdom. Lifeway Research found a few years ago that almost half of all respondents said they never think about whether they will spend eternity in heaven. Uh, they, it's not that they don't think about, uh, you know, whether they have earned heaven or not. They just don't even think about it. You see, they don't see, it's not that truth is important. It's deeply irrelevant. See, those are all the ways that I think we can interpret and understand what Pilate is saying. Truth is what you make it, buddy, and I've got the power and you don't. And this is exactly where Pilate goes. In chapter 19, he, he summons Jesus back in the room. And you know what he says? He says, don't you understand that I have authority to release you and authority to kill you? And what does Jesus say? <laughs> buddy, you're all wrong about these power dynamic things. You know who does have the authority? And I lay my life down for the sheep. You don't have the authority. The only authority you think you have was given to you by God. That's what he says in 19, but he can't get out of the worldview of power dynamics. And then, of course, I think at the end of the day, if Pilate were really honest, he just doesn't care. He just doesn't care. So I know it's hard to imagine a world like that. Isn't it hard to imagine people who think like that? Isn't it hard to imagine religious hypocrites as leaders? Isn't it hard to imagine silent, intimidated believers who are absent? Isn't it hard to imagine people who deconstruct the truth? Well, what is it that we most need? Well, I would suggest to you, um, on behalf of Jesus Christ, that you hear his voice. In this passage, what does Jesus say? He says, those who are of the truth hear my voice. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom, my values are not the world's values or the world's worldview. And yet, I will give the world justice, complete justice, and I will give the world complete mercy. You know, the justice that you're all yearning for, I will give it. And the mercy and the reconciliation and the forgiveness and the mercy, I will give it. You know, at the cross, God is demonstrating that he is just. He does not look upon injustice and do nothing. God will decisively punish injustice. And he hates every form of sin. And yet, miraculously, at the cross, God is also demonstrating that he himself is full of mercy and unending forgiveness. For all who repent, he will remove their sins as far as the east is from the west. Paul says in Romans 3, at the cross, God demonstrates to us that he is both just and what? The justifier of him who believes in Christ. You see, all of the longings that all these groups of people have for religious truth, for justice, they're not found in the world's worldview. And they're not found in just religious practice. They're found only in Jesus Christ. Who is the truth? Uh, friends, that's an invitation to hear the voice of Jesus. Let's pray.
Father, we pray that we would hear Jesus's voice and no one else's. Uh, Father, would we turn, uh, Lord, away from our sin? Lord, would we turn neither to the right nor to the left? Would we hold tight to your word? Holy Spirit, would you be at work in our hearts and minds? Would you conform our hearts and minds to the image of your son, Jesus Christ? Uh, Father, would we not use our faith to prop ourselves up, but would we use our faith to make much of you and your Holy Spirit? Lord Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. Uh, Lord, be with us. Give us the voice of Jesus. May we not be silent in these days. Amen.